Good morning, Sanlo. All right, everyone's awake this morning. That's great. Uh, I know it's a little gray outside, but happy Father's Day. Um, happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there, grandfathers, father figures. I just want to say thank you, uh, not just because it is Father's Day uh, to you guys especially, but it really is a special privilege that God has given to all of you. And I pray that uh, you would use uh, those positions that he's given to you uh, to use those wisely. And I wanted to celebrate too. I want to dress like y'all. So I've got my dad's shoes and I'm on my golf polo. So uh, happy Father's Day. Um, but uh, sorry to reduce you guys to that. But <laughs> it's a joke. It's a joke. Right. So to start off to our message though this morning, I'd like to begin a story about a boy who didn't have a father. And um, it's, a, it's an orphan from the story of uh, Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Uh, and you've probably read it in school growing up sometime. Or if you're like me, you looked it up on the internet a few days ago. And you're like, oh, that's what it's about on Cliff Notes and Spark Notes. So it's a great book, according to all the internet people. Uh, so uh, I heard also after service earlier that there's a movie that was made in the 30s, supposedly. So. I guess check that out too. <laughs> but anyway, um, it's, a, it's a great book from what I gather so far. Um, it's about a boy, an orphan boy named Pip. And uh, one day he visits his parents' grave. Uh, that's how it starts out. He's visiting his parents' grave. And then he's approached by an escaped convict. And this guy is named Magwitch. And Magwitch, he's looking for food. And he's looking for a file to take the chains off of him because, again, he's an escaped convict. So Pip being the kind-hearted boy that he is, he brings the food, he brings the file to him, but at the same time, the police meet him, but Magwitch sticks his neck out for him to protect Pip from getting in trouble. Later on in the story, we see Pip meeting uh, a beautiful young uh, lady, uh, a girl by the name of Estella, whom he falls in love with somehow, but I don't understand why he falls in love with her, because he, she treats him so coldly uh, I don't get it. Someone please explain that to me later. Um, but why would you fall in love with someone who's mean to you? I don't get it. Um, but he falls in love with her somehow, um, according to the Spark Notes, and he dreams of becoming a rich gentleman so he could be allowed to marry her one day. And this sets up the rest of the story. Pip's dreams to marry this girl and his journey to become a wealthy guy. Um, but what he finds out is that things don't actually always go according to plan. In fact, for many of the characters in this novel, things don't work out according to their plans, or you could say according to their expectations. In our day-to-day -day lives, each of us have our own dreams, we have our own expectations, our desires, our wants for what we want to make out of life for ourselves for those we love and for the world around us. But what we find is many times, if not more often than not, things don't go according to our own plans. So for us this morning who have ever experienced just life in the good and the bad, please ask yourselves, what am I placing my hope in? My plans, my dreams, my expectations, whom upon am I relying who am I entrusting my life to when things get hard? Those are the questions we'll be seeking to answer from our passage this morning. So if you have your Bibles and I encourage you to bring them, please turn with me to Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40, verses 9 to 31. 
of Isaiah 49 to 31. And as you're turning there, it's always important for us to understand the context of any passages that we're reading from, because that's what's going to give us the clearest picture of what God means to communicate to us. So, a little bit about the book of Isaiah. At one time in the nation of Israel's history, there was a prophet by the name of Isaiah, aptly named, who lived amongst the people and proclaimed God's judgment against them. They have seemed righteous on the outside, but in fact, on the inside, their hearts reflected a blindness, a deafness to who God truly is. Though they were God's chosen people by name, they didn't live like it, nor did they seem to believe it by their actions. Instead of trusting God to protect them from attacking neighboring nations, they looked to other neighboring nations to protect them, creating these alliances. And in the process, they ignore God by attempting to take care of things on their own instead of turning to Him when things got rough. Eventually, God would judge the surrounding nations and Israel for all of their rebellion against Him. And where we find Israel in our passage this morning, she is in the process of being judged by God, already captured by Babylon, and now exiled away from her homeland. And instead of remembering who God has already revealed himself to be, who he's revealed himself over and over again in the past with their rescue from Egypt and their deliverance into their promised land when things were looking really shaky, they complain. And they question God's goodness to them with questions like, does God really want to save us? Hasn't he already given up on us because of our persistent sinning? And here's when the prophet Isaiah answers with a big no. God is not defeated by Israel's sin. And not only does he want to restore them, but he intends to make them the bringers of God's good news to the nations. So this morning we have the privilege of seeing who God is in this passage and how it reveals what we believe about him and the doctrine of God. After all, we are going through a series on doctrine this, this summer, why doctrine matters, and doctrine meaning what we believe about who God is and what the Bible says about the world around us. And what we'll see here is how doctrine of God informs not only what we know about God, but how that changes our expectations in life and what we're living for. And that brings us to our main point this morning, if you're following along, and the handout. Because God is great, we can place our faith in Him. Because God is great, we can place our faith in Him. And faith here means full trust. Because God is great, we can put our full trust in Him. By nature of who He is, we can trust God with our plans. We can trust Him with our lives. We can trust Him with our everything. And there is nothing that we can't trust Him with because He has full control over everything. Again, we see the Israelites having a tough time trusting God. After all, from their perspective, it seemed like He couldn't help them out because Babylon had captured their homeland and their city in the first place. So why should they trust him now? And following that thought, why should we trust him now in today's age? The answer to this is the same answer to the question posed on your inserts. Why is the doctrine of God important? So why can we trust God now? Second, why is the doctrine of God important? Which leads us to our first point this morning. It reveals who God is. It reveals who God is. 
The doctrine of God reveals who God is. It teaches us God's character. And by knowing God's character, we can begin to set our expectations, our dreams, our, lower, our lives accordingly. And starting from verse 12, we can see who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. We can see first that God is creator. God is creator. The, these questions here aren't meant to put God down. They're not meant to question his character. But instead, they're meant to magnify him in the eyes of the listener, in our eyes, in Israel's eyes. Essentially, God is without, without rival. He is the one and only creator. As the one who measures the earth, weighing it and marking it off, he is beyond nature, not part of it. And many of us can take these truths as obvious or, or self-evident, but we shouldn't take them for granted as easy as it is to do that, uh, especially if you've been a believer for a long time. Nevertheless, the Bible over and over again puts forth this idea, there is no one like God. There is no one like God. There is no one like God. God is infinitely greater than the world that he created. He created the universe as easily as a skilled carpenter makes a table or a chair. And as beautiful as such, actually more so. This idea isn't developed and proved so much as it's already assumed and built on by the author here, Isaiah. And God isn't the oceans, he's not the mountains or the heavens like the pagan nations believed him to be or gods to be, but he is the other than all these things. He exists outside of the created order. In fact, he holds them in his hand. The universe's origin lying with him, not with the world. In verses 30, 13 to 14, we see God is, not, is, is omniscient. So we know God is creator, and here we see God is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. Look with me at 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he console and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The answer to each of these questions is no one. No one is able to measure God's spirit. And no one is able to show God any counsel, counsel because only God is able to measure himself. If we can't even take the measure of the physical world as accurately as he does, how can we seek to even measure him, who, he who exists outside of our world? Nobody can fully understand God because nobody can get a full grasp of him. Nobody is on the same level of him because he is infinitely wise as we are finite. He knows all justice, he knows all knowledge, and he knows all understanding. And as omniscient creator, there is no one like him. This otherness that's been hitting home over and over again. Isaiah's hitting home over and over. God is greater. God is greater than the greatest powers of the world. That's the third thing. God is greater than the greatest powers of the world. Look at 15 and 20. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? 
an idol. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. What Isaiah is saying here is that no nations can stand on par with God. Not even the greatest nations of Isaiah's day, not Egypt, not Assyria, not Babylon, not Canaan. None of them could stand in comparison to our God. And in fact, they're just like a drop in the bucket. They're like dust on a scale, not even getting picked up. However strong the nations are, they are no match for God. And we can understand coastlands as a parallel term for nations or islands or that which lies at the edges of the continents. So in other words, the ends of the earth. So even the ends of the earth are taken up like dust by him. He's completely in control of the world's structure. The great nations of the world may be great in their own eyes, but in the eyes of the one who brought the universe into existence, they are minuscule, they are tiny, they are practically nothing. There aren't even enough animals or forests in Lebanon that could bring forth an offering worthy of his complete stature. So to help us understand that a little bit, one of the great things about living in California is that we have these awesome redwood trees. If you guys have ever been to John Muir, uh, National Monument, it's not too far, it's a beautiful uh, hike around. Um, you'll get to see just how enormous and beautiful these trees are, and they're like really old, but really cool at the same time. Um, and you can even drive through one, I think, that was really neat. Um, if I'm thinking of the right place, someone please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, yes? Yeah? Oh, Yosemite? Oh, I'm Yosemite, Yosemite. Okay, yeah, but yeah, redwoods in California, right? They're huge, they're beautiful, they're enormous. But not even the redwoods of California would be enough fire uh, to create an offering worthy of God. In the same way, Lebanon, for all of their great forests in their days, as they were recognized for having, those would not be enough wood that would be worthy enough an offering for God. Thus, the smallest of Lebanon stands for the smallness of our world in comparison to God. He's so great that even Lebanon's cedar forest wouldn't be enough for worship. He's worth more worship than we could ever give him. And bringing it back to the nations again in 17, it's just as Isaiah says. The nations are nothing before him again. And with three very powerful negative words in the original language. One, that which is not. Two, that which does not exist. And three, chaos or emptiness. Isaiah makes it clear that beside God, the nations don't even exist. He's not just greater than them. He's on a whole other playing field. He's transcendent. But this isn't to say God considers them as nothing or worthless. Then going on into 18 to 20, note the sarcasm of Isaiah comparing an idol to God. Going off of what we learn about God and his transcendence in the first point, him existing in a whole other dimension from us, we can assume at the next step that the next step would be that people would be unable to make an image of him. 
Because how can people make an image of a God whom they can't see in their own universe? In fact, anybody trying to make an idol would be necessarily wrong right away. And Isaiah is poking fun at how silly it is to compare God to an idol. When God is the very one who created the materials for that idol to be crafted in the first place. Thus, God isn't only greater than other gods. There are no other gods because there is only one God. How can we sum up what we've learned about God so far? I know this, it's been a lot. Uh, well, one, God is transcendence, meaning he exists outside of our realm of space and time. And two, following that transcendence, God is imminent, meaning he sustains and holds the universe together in the palms of his hands. So how does that impact us? How does that doctrine about God, what is that, that char- those characteristics about God, how do those things impact us right here, right now? I mean, it's a lot of heady knowledge to know, but why does that matter in our day-to-day lives? Well, practically speaking, if we seek to make less of God's transcendence, then we begin to see God as lacking the power to change our circumstances. But perhaps more importantly, if we didn't know God is transcendent, it would mean we'd have lost any ability to change our circumstances because things would simply just happen according to the natural push and pull forces of the universe, of life. On the other hand, if God is only transcendent, meaning only existing outside of us in some far-off dimension, then he doesn't know nor does he care about what's happening in our lives. He simply just brings us into existence and provides the energy for the universe to run. But what we know from the Bible, and specifically from here in Isaiah, is that God is both. God is both transcendent, and God is uh, uh, imminent. He sustains our world from afar, but at the same time, He is present, holding it all together. He's actively involved in our lives, in our well-being. And God can and does intervene in our lives because he's not stuck in our time and space. He can act and change them at his will. And we'll build more on this later. So yes, the doctrine of God reveals he is transcendent. And so why is the doctrine of God important secondly then? Well, it reveals God is over everything. Point number two on the handout. It reveals God is over everything. God doesn't merely exist outside of our world and created order. He rules over it all. God is the ultimate sovereign king over all of creation. See verses 21 to 26. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Isaiah is operating out of an assumption that his audience would know the answer to this question already. These questions. It's God. God has existed since before the beginning of time and from the foundations of the earth. And if the origins of the universe point to a creator beyond the universe itself, then itself couldn't have been responsible for its own beginning meaning God made it all. 
22, we see it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. In other words, God is the one ruling over the earth, and he's the one that lays out a place for us all to live. 23, who brings princes, prin not princesses, princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. God even rules over Earth's strongest, most supreme rulers. And we might see these leaders as huge figures to us, right? Our kings and our presidents. But even they are nothing in comparison to the authority and the weightiness of God. 24, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them. And, he, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Again, our political leader's destiny is in God's hands, not in theirs. And like plants, kings and presidents can grow quickly, but just as quickly wither away because they are no match for God. Because God is endless. Then in 26, Isaiah refers to the stars. And they're probably mentioned here because they were seen as lowercase g gods, not only to the Babylonians whom Israel was captured by, but also to the Canaanites. And sometimes Israel would falter in their worship of God and end up worshiping these stars as well, getting caught up in their neighbor's religions. But those gods don't exist because God is the one who created those stars in the first place. He brought them into being. In fact, in Isaiah's day, to know the name of something was to, to have, was to know its essence and thus have power over it. And if God's the one calling each star by name and bringing them out each by night individually, then Isaiah's saying God rules over even the heavens, over even this, these false gods. There actually are no other gods other than our God. And God is absolutely transcendent and thus absolutely sovereign having ultimate power over all things. And we can sum up these verses in the, in the two words, right? Uh, TLDR. Uh, too lazy didn't read. Sovereign creator, right? Sovereign creator. God is both creator and sovereign over all. The truth of creation is that God existed before the universe came to be and brought it into being according to his personal plan. And God is even in control over the biggest rulers of our world. And commentary scholar John Oswald says it like this when speaking about the implications of the doctrine of creation if it were not true. So one, if, if matter were to precede spirit, human personality is only of an accidental nature and is finally insignificant. Two, if the cosmos happened by chance, life is without both meaning and purpose. Three, if the cosmos originated out of eternal conflict, whether called good and evil or positive and negative, the human quest for peace and personal integration is useless, grasping for the wind. Four, if the present condition of the cosmos is the result of an evolution governed by the interrelationship of mindless, irresistible forces, there is no possibility of personal transformations. Salvation can never be more than just self-actualization. And the key idea to all of this is that because God is our creator, he has made us with a purpose. 
It's not only by chance that you and I are both alive right now here in this room. And there is a hope for salvation that lies outside of ourselves. Which brings us to our third point on why the doctrine of God is important this morning. It reveals God's heart. The doctrine of God reveals God's heart. We see that in verses 27 to 31. It shows us not only his otherworldly greatness, but his genuinely caring and loving heart for each and every one of us. God does not want to hold back his care and strength from our lives. It was clear the Israelites saw God as a slow mover, and we're just like them. We see God as a slow mover many times. But Isaiah seems to respond to them like this. In light of what I just said to you, you still think God's ignoring you? How can you believe that now after what I just mentioned about him? So in some ways, verses 27 to 31, they act as a summary of what's been covered so far. But in light of God's transcendence and role as sovereign creator, we know he doesn't work on our timetable or our limitations. He's not bound by those things. But God is working for you, and you can place your faith and trust in him. Verse 27, Israel is highlighting the attitude of all the exiles believing they're now outside of God's care, oftentimes like how we feel that God has given up on them, saying, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? But as we see in 28, Isaiah reminds them God is their everlasting God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He's not just some separate out of this world being who doesn't care for us, but he's very much a part of our world, and he is a part of each of our lives. And as the Lord of the universe, his strength never runs out, and his wisdom has no end, which means that he that we, as his created people, might not ever understand God's plans for us and his purposes for us. But as we see in verse 29, God gives his endless strength to the weak. God upholds his tired people. Verse 30, even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. 31, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God's strength surpasses even the most energetic of us all. But even when the young men tucker out, God will give strength to those who wait on him. Not waiting merely with time, as we can often think of waiting as just a time-related thing, but it's a waiting out of a confident expectation that God is acting on our behalf. So instead of trying to fix things on their own, Isaiah calls Israel to place their trust in God to save them from Babylon. And God calls us into the same waiting today. It's a call to place complete dependence and willingness in God to allow him to be the one to decide the terms of our lives and to trust him with everything that happens in our lives. As difficult as many of those things are, how easy 
it is to, to feel hopeless and giving up our trust to God. And this waiting, it means that we don't have any other options for help. God is the only one who can offer it if God is the only God. And we get, but, I mean, the benefit of it all, how great it is that we get to exchange, our, exchange out our worn-out strength with His new strength, His unending strength. And as those with His strength, we can move forward as if on the wings of eagles running and walking by His power. And we can see these same ideas and these themes in verses 9 to 11. God's strength and care for His people. Right? Verse 9. Get up. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, for you're not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. So Isaiah is saying, look at God, look how great he is. Then in verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. God with the strength of a warrior but at the same time with the tenderness of a shepherd. He distributes the spoils of his victory to his people. With a strong arm, he lifts them up as a warrior, but at the same time, he picks us up as if we ourselves are lambs in his arms, in his hands, gathering up the broken in his gentle arms. This is how God cares for us because of who he is and his great character and power, God has set up a salvation plan for us through Jesus, his son. Like a shepherd who gathers his sheep who've been hurt, God gathers up all of us who've been afflicted by sin, all of us who have been hurt by the world, all of us who've been hurt by many things, knowing we wouldn't have the power to overcome sin on our own. God sent his son, Jesus, to become our power, to become our strength. In dying for us, paying the price for our sins and rising from the dead, Jesus accomplishes our salvation all according to God's loving and transcendent character. That's why this doctrine of God matters. That's why it's so important. It's not just some heady, far-off idea that we think about in our brains, but it has very real-life practical applications to us and implications that through Jesus, the linking of God's transcendence and God's imminence comes to its pinnacle. In Christ, God has come to us both in humility and in power. God doesn't only just know about our condition. He enters into it. And then he saves us from it. So again, in great expectations, according to Cliff Notes, uh, Pip had its own expectations for how his life would turn out. He had grand plans that he would work to become rich, right? And he'd become a gentleman in order to marry this mean girl, Estella, real-life mean girl. Uh, but things didn't go so smoothly. Uh, what ends up happening is Estella, she, she marries some other kind of loafy kind of a guy, and Pip finds out his fortune came from that convict that he met so long ago, this escaped convict. convict. But once Magwitch gets caught again by the police, Pip loses his fortune, his way of becoming a gentleman. But 
and the end pip all ends up all right. He becomes a gentlemanly merchant working abroad away from England. Then returning back many, many years later, he discovers his love's husband, Estella's husband, passes away. He's, he's gone and they end up together. What a road that is. And the Israelites had their own expectations how things would work out, particularly wondering why they were exiled to Babylon. And they had their homeland taken from them. They had their home taken from them. They had everything taken from them. They were so sure that their nation would not fall and that their temple would not get destroyed, yet it all happened. They end up questioning God's character. But Isaiah reminds them of who God is. That he's transcendent. That God is caring. And there's nothing that a caring creator cannot change. And we are people of worth to him. And while we can't pick out the way that our lives pan out, we can hold on to God with the confident hope that he's in control of our lives for our greatest good because we can look back at his track record. In the same vein, we can believe that God, exchange, that God changes our circumstances. He's already answered our greatest need for a Savior in Jesus, so of course there could be real change for the better in other parts of life. We, too, have our own expectations for how our lives should pan out, but God's greatness offers us hope, even when they don't go according to plan. And God did care for the Israelites beyond their captivity in Babylon, just as he cares for us. In application, then, what expectations might you have of yourselves when things don't go right? With the way things are failing to pan out in your career, perhaps Things haven't been going as well as you'd like. You're not at the stage you want to be at by now. You don't have that title or the pay grade that you've wanted for some time. Or maybe you never got those things. With your marriages, I may, I may not be married, but it doesn't take a married person to know just that, I, I mean, that marriage is one of the most difficult things that pe two people can pursue, but also at the same time be one of the most beautiful things to pursue with another person. Maybe you and your spouse argue angrily, regularly. You can't seem to resolve your issues and you're withholding forgiveness from one another. You're withholding grace. And resentment is eating away at what was once before a life-giving relationship. Or what expectations might you have for your families, of your families, with your kids. They're acting out in an unhealthy way. It's difficult to communicate with them and to get your point across, to get them to behave. Or let's flip it around on, for, on, that, on that, that head for a second from the youth's perspective, right? So you don't want to share what's going on in your life with your parents. You just want to keep things between you and your friends or just me, myself, and I. Maybe the relational dynamics between family members became they become tense when two people are in the same room together, regardless of child or extended family. 
Or what expectations do you have of God for what He should be doing in your life? Even going through an inordinate amount of stress in this season of life. You're suffering or hurting in some way, asking yourself, where is God in all of this? Like the Israelites, you wonder, has God left me? Like the Israelites, you wonder, where are you, Lord? Now, I don't pretend to have all the answers. And to be honest, I don't even have some of the answers. But brother and sister, I say this in all care and in all gentleness, that God is in control of all things in accordance with his greatness. And he is good. He stands outside of space and time itself, yet at the same time, He cares enough for us to enter into our world in order to save us from our sin. And He gives us hope, a true hope, a never-ending hope, a, a hope that you can bank your life on through Christ. And it's great as we learn who God is in this doctrine of God and what He has done in Israel's history. We know that He doesn't just care for your futures in heaven, but he wants to give you a hope that meets you right where you're at right now in the present. Because God is over all things, he's in control of all things, including your lives. He alone is in control. He's not just some God, some deity relaxing on some far-off cloud like a cartoon, not caring about us at all in the slightest, with some straw in his mouth. He's not like that. He's actively present, and he's moving among us, even when we don't understand, especially when we don't understand. And he cares for us in our weakness by giving us his strength. So as Isaiah encourages the Israelites to do, church, I ask you and encourage you, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord not just letting the clock tick life away and the concept of time of waiting, but wait in confident expectation of what God will do next. For it's because of God's greatness we can confidently entrust our faith. We can confidently entrust our entire lives in his hands. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for who you are. And thank you, Lord, for your greatness. Lord, this is often a truth that we take for granted, that, Lord, you are great and that you are creator. Lord, that you are transcendent and you are imminent. Lord, help us to see exactly just what this means and how this connects to our lives. Then and how we can surrender everything over to you and trust you with it. Lord, many of us here this morning are going through some uh, terrible, terrible things in life right now. Lord, please meet us where we are at. Meet each of us where we are at. And Lord, would you please be the one that gives us hope?
because you're the only one who can offer it. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.